This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Adam! Bo? Travis? Bo, I know you're an animal lover, specifically a dog lover, and I was wondering if you'd heard about the puppy scam. I I shudder to think. No, I have not. What is it? It's something where uh, during COVID, um, during the first part of the COVID lockdown, everyone was adopting dogs. Yeah. Uh, I know at least like five or six people who just got a dog just because they're trapped inside, nothing else to do. So apparently there are these scam rings where they will get the cutest little picture of a puppy with like sad basset hound eyes and uh, scam people into adopting them and then just pretty much running off with their money. It's a multi-million dollar crime that leaves heartbreak in its wake and those who track it say it is run by organized gangs. We're talking about puppy scams tonight, consumer investigators. Well, I mean, (laughs) it's okay, Adam, you're a good boy. Uh, where this is like Toby that you first thing I thought was Toby the rabbit. Do you remember Toby the rabbit? Anybody? No. Adam? I remember Harvey the invisible no, rabbit. No, no, Harvey's different. So no, Toby was a cute little bunny and there was a photograph of him on a frying pan. And the caption said, if you don't if we don't make $10,000 by the end of the day, we're going to eat Toby. Ooh. And people sent the money. You don't remember this, Travis? I think you talked about it in another episode, but I don't remember the actual uh, bunny. Yeah. An empty crate, unfilled food bowls, and puppy toys waiting to be played with. All of it purchased in anticipation of Millie, a Havanese puppy who warmed the hearts of the Mac family. So, no, I don't know about this, but that that is, that is exactly the sort of thing that makes me want to... Um, get a really cool suit and swear more than I even already do and become the second coming of Deadpool and get the bad guys. Well, if it's any consolation, it does sound like uh, Google is suing the main guy behind it. Well, what I mean, how does it even work? Was there just one dude who was uh, pinky to the, to the lips uh, stealing puppy money? Yeah, he was apparently soliciting specifically Basset Hounds and the way to pay him was, wait for it, hmm. gift cards. Oh, shit. You wanted $700 ah. worth of gift cards. <laughs> so um, you would think that would be kind of the first red flag there because I've never once seen anyone buy a puppy with uh, Apple gift cards, but there you have it. And if we're talking about Basset Hounds, I mean, I'm all ears. Oh, well, I mean, and Adam actually does. I, 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 I didn't know this was wrong, but Adam pays me in gift cards. Yes, I certainly do, don't I? Yes, yes. Oh. <laughs> so no um, wonder, No wonder you don't get a... W two or a ten ninety nine. I figured so, that out now. But it seems kind of nuts to me. Like you get somebody's like you know I'll get I'll uh, Adam Bo. I have the the water skiing boat. I'm sure that's not what you call it. You can tell that I don't water ski. That you've been looking for, just like old Noah, our our previous guest. Um, uh, and you can have it. You just need to give me twenty thousand dollars in Amazon gift cards. I mean, really? Well, one of the main things too yeah. is that they um, this this one scammer in particular went after uh, elderly people who were sequestered by COVID. Oh, so, gosh. Yeah. Counterfeit dogs. What will they think of next? Counterfeit credit cards? Ah, 
which brings us to our episode today. Although they weren't really carded, they weren't counterfeit dogs, were they? But you have to love the picture of a duck with cardboard puppy ears taped to its head. Oh, that was you who sent me that. Oop. Gotcha. <laughs> Welcome to What the Hack with Adam Levin, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Bo, cyber skimmer. I'm Adam, a.k.a. Kenneth, Bo's bear. How did you know what I named my bear? Because you told me what you named your bear. Oh, Kenny. And I'm Travis, cyber donkey. Donkey. Don <laughs> and today we're talking with a former Secret Service agent who took down a transnational counterfeit credit card ring. The man, the myth, the legend, Brian Ebert. Hey, what's going on, guys? Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Bro's got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means... You get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't, like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C ebikes dot com. It is good to see you, and it's nice that we have, you know, someone who looks respectable on this show. Welcome. It's so great to see you. Fantastic to be here. I missed you. For, for our folks in our audience to know, Brian and I had the opportunity to work together uh, for a couple of years. I have nothing but admiration for Brian. Brian is one of those guys that when you think about superstars, Brian is a superstar. Okay, now hold it, Adam. Yeah. I had no idea that you were in the Secret Service. You didn't know that? <laughs> you understand that's why it's called secret 
I think Travis probably has some questions here because, you know, I, I don't buy it. I don't think you were in the Secret Service. Yeah, I'd have to say I'm skeptical on that note. But uh, so, Brian, a pleasure to meet you. Uh, what did you do for the Secret Service? So I uh, was with the Secret Service for 30 years. Uh, hard to believe. Wow. Um, I retired last year. The role I retired from, I was the chief of staff of the agency. And a couple of uh, roles I had before that, I was the deputy assistant director for protective operations, um, helping to lead our uh, global protective mission. And prior to that, I was the special agent in charge of our Washington field office, which covers Washington, D.C. and uh, parts of Northern Virginia and, uh, and Southern Maryland. Wow. How did you actually land that gig or those gigs? <laughs> uh, just spent, spent a career in the Secret Service. And, uh, you know, we have two missions in the Secret Service to uh, investigate financial crimes and to uh, protect our, uh, our elected leaders. So um, it's surprising how often the two different parts of our mission mutually support each other. Mm. So throughout our careers, we we sort of bounce around in different assignments uh, on both so- sides of that mission area. And you just, you become a better and better investigator and uh, stronger and stronger at working uh, protective operations. So I just had some great opportunities to um, work some really fun, diverse assignments uh, around the world. So it's, it, was, it was a fantastic career. As the head of protective details, uh, you, you had to have protected some like really cool people, right? Uh, yes. Um, fortunately, can't go into a lot of details, but I can certainly talk about who I protect uh, was involved in protecting. So we protect the president and vice president and their families. Right. Uh, everybody knows that. Uh, during campaign season, um, we protect the, uh, uh, the candidates when they reach a certain threshold is decided by a, um, a panel up in Congress that decides. Um, so we, we protect the uh, most of the major candidates as well. And then what a lot of people, we protect the former presidents. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is we protect all the foreign visiting heads of state. So the presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens, that when they're on U.S. soil, Secret Service is responsible for protecting them as well. All right. So without revealing too much information, who was, in your estimation, in all the years that you were involved doing your work with the Secret Service, who was the most interesting foreign dignitary that you were in charge of the protective detail for? Wow, there's there was so many, and I, and I did a few years up in our New York office, and a lot of these world leaders would come in for the United Nations, so we had a lot of them. Uh, you know, the, the president of Tuvalu, which is a small what? island... Uh, I know, I know, uh, a small <laughs> island in the in the Pacific, um, and uh, smaller than than Manhattan, and with the with the with the much smaller population, that was really uh, that was really interesting because they adhered to a lot of the customs and cultures from from their small island country, and they hadn't spent a lot of time in the United States or in big cities. So, I was a, a young agent when I was on that detail uh, back when I was assigned to our Los Angeles field office, and. We actually went to uh, Disneyland in uh, in California, um, and, and and took the leader there uh, with his small little entourage. His chief of staff was his his brother in law, um, and we we went and did uh, and did Disneyland and did all the rides. And Disneyland itself had a bigger population than his country, 
and was not physically much smaller than his country. So that was probably the most uh, interesting um, experience I had because at the same time, as, as small uh, as the country is and uh, uh, is differently cultural, he's he's one of the you know 160 some uh, world leaders you know that that are represented at the at the United Nations. So it was interesting to spend time with him. And I have to, I I have to ask so. Did you take him on the It's a Small World ride? Uh, we did the It's a Small World yeah, okay. ride, and uh, we we did a number of rides, and I, I you know, got got to know uh, him a little bit, and I pointed out Space Mountain, and I said, you know, sir, are you interested in doing Space Mountain? The other agents on this protective assignment were senior agents uh, that have been around a long time, and I was I was the new kid. Uh, and so I was, and I, you know, was a little bit closer to spending time in uh, amusement parks than, than the senior agents were. So I was sort of given the task of, uh, of, of communicating with him about what he wanted to do. And I have to say, I pushed him towards, uh, towards Space Mountain. And he was, <laughs> he was very, uh, very concerned about going on it in first, th- that it was a scary roller coaster. Uh, but I explained that there was a planet that w- was like a, looked like a giant chocolate chip cookie. The president really liked his, uh, his chocolate chip cookies. And, uh, so he eventually agreed to, uh, to go on the roller coaster that his brother-in-law, the chief of staff was not at all happy about it, but, uh, he turned a little bit green on it, but the, uh, the man and I rode in the front seat and, uh, I got him to put his, put his arms up and, um, you know, <laughs> no American tradition. <laughs> Did you now? And, uh, did experience. you turn a little green in the front seat, or were you okay? <laughs> did he get Mickey ears? Is the question I have. <laughs> he did not. The, the only time I saw him, he was a very humble man, a very nice man. The only time I saw him uh, uh, assert his privilege a little bit, as he turned to the the VIP host that was kind of taking us through. After the roller coaster came back, he, he wasn't quick to get out of the uh, of the car when it came back, and the the guardrail came up, and he said, "We will ride your space mountain again." And so we went and did a, a second round I of. Love uh, it. Nice. <laughs> so it was fun. What was like your most Jason Bourne moment? I'm, I need to know this too. Wait, like, wait, so wait. You, you're a Secret Service guy. Like, you must be able to like do backflips while you're shooting people upside down, right? Uh, well, you know, the, the younger agents are, are you know, <laughs> got them involved with more of the uh, the acrobatics. Okay. No, you know, I mean, the the job is really it's a very very interesting job, but it's it's all about relationships with with other law enforcement partners and with the intelligence community and uh, international partners and building those relationships and getting everybody on the same page is, is uh, it's what it's, what it's all about. Certainly the most exciting moments I had were probably more on our investigative mission back. And I came up on the, on the West coast. So working uh, fraud cases and, you know, working informants and, and involved in undercover deals Um and uh, you know, doing surveillances on on the bad guys and staking them out, and and uh, you know, when you get the search warrant, um, you know, doing entries into the houses and, and locking up the bad guys, all, all that. There was some, there was a couple car chases, a couple of uh, folks that that uh, they didn't want to be arrested that either ran or wanted to fight a little bit. So 
plenty plenty of excitement um but mostly it's 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 about just you know nose to the grindstone doing the investigations building the relationships and uh um you know getting the mission done so the secret service started actually in the fi- on the financial side as uh, uh tracking down counterfeiters and stuff like that am i right or well, how did it begin you're exactly right uh we came into existence in 1865. Uh, President Lincoln actually commissioned us to investigate uh, counterfeit currency during the uh, the Civil War. At that time, uh, it was estimated over a third of all the currency in population was actually counterfeit. But yeah, we work we work counterfeit currency investigations, which we still work to this day. Um, and it kind of morphed into other types of fraud. It wasn't until 1901 when President McKinley was assassinated that we actually started, uh, our protective mission started and both of our investigative mission has, and our protective mission, which we really consider one mission, like two different parts of, uh, of our mission, um, have really grown exponentially, uh, on both sides and protecting people grew into protecting, um, uh, places as well as events, certain events that are, that are designated, uh, so we, we protect those events as well. And on the investigative side, we've sort of grown to a point where we, you know, our job is to keep, help keep the financial infrastructure of the, of the, uh, of the country safe. And so we really mostly now we still work counterfeit currency and more traditional frauds, but the majority of what we do is we investigate cyber enabled fraud cases. And so that's, that's really the backbone of our investigative mission. And we're able to use what we learn on both sides of our mission uh, to support to support the other. And uh, that's why it, it makes sense to have these two parts of the mission, which seem to be unrelated at first. But it really makes sense for one agency to be involved with both because they they mutually support each other so well. And you're also working on um, things like cryptocurrency scams, too, right? Wouldn't that be part of the? A- a- absolutely. I mean. Right now, I know the agency, I've been out for a few months, but I, I know the agency is very focused on um, investigating and seizing digital assets from cyber criminal actors and, and educating the public also about how to recognize the illegal use of digital assets, you know, like Bitcoin and other digital currencies that, that the bad guys are using to launder or cash out stolen funds from ransomware attacks or other types of digital scams like exploiting online dating and professional networking sites social media scams, in any type of cyber-enabled financial crimes. The Secret Service actually has a new public-facing cyber currency awareness site to educate the community and, and to provide a forum for reporting potentially legal activity. So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address, or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. 
I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split second financial decisions. And that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks and I trade options and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. When you talk about counterfeiting, right, so there's obviously counterfeiting currency, but you also talked about another kind of counterfeiting program, and that had to do with credit card counterfeiting, right? A absolutely. Um, we uh, we got involved with credit cards soon after they uh, started to be used. And, uh, you know, the bad guys are always uh, adapting and evolving. So we have to be as well. And they were quickly learning how to uh, commit fraud with either stolen credit cards or stolen credit card numbers that could be encoded onto the magnetic strip of counterfeit credit cards and, and embossed onto the front of the card and then often using uh, a counterfeit IDs to, to in support what, with these counterfeit credit cards, again, containing stolen uh, credit card number and account information um, to purchase high dollar uh, items. So that's that's certainly been an issue for a long time. So when did this, when did this start though? I mean, is this like pre... I mean, I, I think of like the Silk Silk Road black market from of yesteryear, and and um, I mean, it was it, it predated that. No, did they did 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 scams start with credit cards? I mean, Adam would know the answer to this too, like from day one or soon after. They absolutely did. I mean, long before the Silk Road. What year are we talking about? We're talking around two thousand six. Okay, wow. So that was like before there were transaction alerts for credit cards that was before we had credit cards with chips in them where would they get the stock that they would use for the fake credit cards the group that we were investigating did not counterfeit did not make the counterfeit cards themselves they purchased those in bulk for like sleeves of 500 from overseas 
So they would come, they would have a, 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 a bank on them. It might be Citibank. It might be any number of different banks on them. And the front would be blank with nothing, no uh, numbers or name embossed into the plastic. And the magnetic strip, it would be a real magnetic strip, but it would be empty of information. Um, so you're mentioning that uh, they were getting these cards from overseas. Was there one specific hub or one country that was more prone to have these, or was it just like a truly worldwide uh, operation? These particular cards were being purchased uh, in Hong Kong. The bad guys were very smart. They would decentralize the different parts of this scam. The first part was that they would enlist servers in restaurants to use small handheld devices that, that were skimming devices. And so when customers would pay for their meal with a credit card on the way to the stand to run the card, they would slide it through the device, the skimming device, which would capture the information. So in other words, Bo would go into a restaurant, he would finish dinner, he would hand his credit card to a waiter. The waiter would go into the back room because those were the days when they would take your credit card and go in the back as opposed to bringing a little device for you to stick your card in. They'd go in the back, they'd skim, they would you know, do the normal credit card charge, but they would make a copy for themselves while they were at it. That's exactly correct. And, and what is it, a skimming device? Like, what does it actually do? How does it work? It's just a portable version of uh, like a point of sale terminal, except all it does, like that you use at any merchant that when you put your card in, it reads the information. Uh, but this skimming device is, is smaller and all it does is capture the digital information that's on the magnetic strip. So it will be the name of the card holder and uh, it will be the account number and perhaps some other information. Now this was before other security features that now exist on credit cards be before like the they had chip or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. It was, it was before just when chips were coming out and the CVV codes weren't being used regularly yet. So it was before some of the, that's these sort of scams is why some of these security features, uh, uh, were added by the banks for sure. Uh, 2000, I would say one, maybe right at the right. 2000, in Chinatown, I used to work in Chinatown. Um, I purchased. We a, won't ask Bo what he did in Chinatown. I was a book publisher, and so <laughs> I went. I, I was. I was. That's what they all in, say when they work in Chinatown. No, I'm they, a book they, publisher. They, they all say it. it's weird. Walk down the street, you, you throw a rock, and you got a book publisher. But, um, but at any rate, I was down there, and I, I bought a pair of sneakers at this uh, shop on Canal Street, um, and a few days later, my credit card. Uh, had five thousand dollars worth of gold charged on it uh gold jewelry that was purchased on the west coast um and that was in 2000 um but it sounds a bit like what you're talking about is it possible that i was skimmed way back then or did these skimming devices not exist back then it absolutely existed for sure back into the 90s um but there are also all, all sorts of other ways for criminals to steal the information. One of the first cases that I was involved with, I wasn't the case agent on it, but I helped out with it as a real junior agent. So this was like 1992. We called it the Fredericks of Hollywood case because there were folks that served as operators that you 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 could call in to Fredericks of Hollywood to buy lingerie or whatever particularly your fancy from that, uh, from that company. And they were um, capturing all the credit card numbers from customers that were buying the 
from uh, from Fredericks of Hollywood and the, and sell them in bulk to other bad guys who would, again, encode and emboss them onto counterfeit cards and use them to buy, to do cash advances or to do uh, high dollar purchases for items that they could turn around and fence. It's been going on a long time. So the, the guys who were doing the skimming in these restaurants, the waiters, were they getting a piece of the action, by the way, in those days? Generally, they were getting paid a flat rate, which would be pretty low, like $25 a number that they skimmed. Because that card might have $5,000 worth of credit, or it might have, you know, 50 bucks worth of credit. And is this anyone, or is it? Or did they pick, like, a specific, like, did they just go to, like... Uh, Italian restaurants. I, I cannot believe they said Italian restaurants. Did they go to, uh, you know, German American restaurants or McDonald's or where, where I, kind of places were they or going? Or higher end Good restaurants, save. you know, I, IHOP. I can say that I've seen these, these sort of skimming operations work out of many different types of restaurants. Okay, but they're going after uh, waiters, and they're just saying, you know, if you every time you do it, we'll give you a certain amount of money. Just so the the device is designed to take multiple. Every time you slide it, it like adds another line of data. So you slide somebody's cart, it grabs the data off of that, which might take three lines, and then you you go and, and uh, grab the next card for somebody paying their bill, and you put it in, and it's the next three lines. So, if you caught one of them, they couldn't help you catch the other guys. The, it was decentralized. Not talking about this particular case, but often when you caught the skimmers, they only knew uh, one person, and they knew him by the first name, and it was just like a way for them to make extra money. Or a lot of times, the the the, the waiters would yeah. maybe be have gambling debts. And this was a way to pay off the debt. Like, hey, you owe, you know, you owe Jimmy uh, five thousand dollars. You know, you get us get us a hundred numbers, and and your your slate will be clean. Like, there was also a decent amount of uh, of that incentive. Or sometimes it was just straight money. Bo made me get him two hundred credit cards. You know, <laughs> so I thought that was a little unfair. But are there ways that consumers can protect themselves from uh, being victimized by a skimmer? Well, the, the good news about this sort of scam is that with all the new security features that we're not seeing as much of this, we are still seeing it at, uh, there's fake ATM machines. We're seeing it at gas stations where they put up a, a fake uh, um, uh, card reader that's that's really just capturing all that information. I mean, the advice that I'd give is to just, just pay attention and, um, you know, I would, for, in terms of ATMs, I would make sure it's in a reputable area, at, you know, preferably at a bank. But just just pay attention and use your common sense and be thoughtful about where you use your cards. The other thing is most of the victims of these scams, where their cards are number, where their number information is, account information is stolen one way or the other, they don't know a crime's been committed until they get their bill. And back then it wasn't normal that people could go online and check their credit card account information regularly. So if people can check their, uh, check their bank accounts and their credit uh, accounts on a regular basis, they're more likely to see that, that fraud activity and be able to shut it down quickly before their, uh, the bad guys are, are doing significant financial harm. 
and, you know, and another thing that you can do, which is very common in Europe, but not so common in the United States, is uh, waiters in, in, in Europe, when they bring your bill, they bring the reader with them and the card never lose, leaves your sight. So you can't do that in the United States always. The card sometimes does go back to the waiter station to get scanned, but you can kind of keep an eye on, on, on it and see if there's anything strange happening. And like you said, nowadays we do have transaction alerts so you can keep tabs on whether or not that card is being used. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, uh, is frustrating to know that a lot of, that those alerts are out there and available, uh, with most major banks and, or, you know, the, the Visa and MasterCard and Amex carriers and, and how many people don't take advantage of that. It's just, it's it's uh, just a wasted opportunity to drastically uh, limit the amount of fraud loss that happens when when your information is stolen because it's not a matter of you know of if it's a matter of when as and I know Adam and, and I, I think all you guys make that point a lot and it's and it's true so it's it's partially about stopping the fraud in the first place whenever you can but there's going to be times you can't and then it's about you know mitigating it and limiting it as, as much as possible so being vigilant. Which means you have to you have to know as quickly as possible you have a problem, and transaction alerts is one of the ways to do it. So where was the shopping happening with the stolen credit cards? So these groups of shoppers, they'd go out, maybe five or six of them with stacks of the counterfeit credit cards and uh, matching uh, counterfeit driver's licenses. And they would fly all over the country. We have them in over uh, 25 states going into big box stores uh, like Best Buy, for example, or it could be an Apple store or it could be a, a store that sells watches and other like smaller jewelry and uh, electronics camera stores and Target. So big, big stores like this, usually where there's a lot of activity, where the people working the registers generally you know, don't have a great investment in the company itself. Like they're not the owner or sure. the manager. They're just, it's, and it was largely consumer electronics or was yep. it just really anything? Okay. It was largely consumer electronics, something that they, they could easily, whatever was selling in big back then there was iPods, mm. um, and, uh, and iPads and, uh, uh, you know, laptops. There was a lot of laptops, cameras, uh, digital cameras, um, in anything like that. You'd see some one-offs, but it was mostly, the, the the small consumer electronics that they knew they could they could turn they could fence very quickly for fifty to seventy five percent of uh of the face value. Were they being fenced in small stores on street corners? Uh, Where were they fencing? The answer is yes. I mean they, they were they were moving them all sorts of ways. They had stores that people weren't uh, didn't really care that much to know the history of where these things came from and didn't, didn't ask questions about, Hey, how come we're getting these for, you know, half price or seven, you know, or, or, you know, 25% off, uh, when they're brand new, there's just all sorts of unscrupulous, uh, folks store, you know, people that run, run stores, uh, but also out on the street. I mean, you know, I, I'm visiting New York this, uh, this week and walking around, you, you just see there's all, all sorts of different, ways that you get approached to buy something. Um, yeah, especially and, Times Square, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Times Square, Chinatown, all, all over the place. There's just a lot of uh, uh, a lot of opportunity to, to move this merchandise. Yeah. 
these guys were basically using counterfeit credit cards to buy real stuff that a lot of people figure when they buy on the streets, that eh, must be counterfeit, but it's cool. But it's not counterfeit. It's the real deal. A lot of times, uh, certainly in, in this particular case that I was talking about, it was certainly the real deal and purchased on counterfeit credit cards, but you can never forget what's what's on that counterfeit credit card is stolen, real people's stolen account numbers. And so they they might live in New Jersey and the card might be used in Oregon to commit the fraud and they don't know a crime happened until 30 days later when they get their bill, if they catch it. And they're like, hey, I've never even been to Oregon. And then that thing that was bought in Portland is being sold on the street of New York to somebody. So now the crime, where's the crime happening? Is the crime happening? I, I know where some of them are happening, but it sounds like there are several crimes happening. Is the purchase on the street of this item, which was purchased with a counterfeit card that was stolen, a crime? Or I mean, it just sounds to me like there's just this is a a, a crime fest. <laughs> there, there's that's what makes this made this case so interesting is that there was all, all these different criminal activities that all rolled up to a couple of big bosses, but these different groups committing them didn't even know each other. So certainly it's a crime to uh, steal somebody's account number on a skimmer with, without them knowing that's a crime in and of itself. The uh, manufacturing and encoding embossing of counterfeit credit cards is, is a crime. It's access device fraud. Even if it happens overseas? Where there's crimes in the United States, this the Secret Service has primary jurisdiction in terms of federal law enforcement. We have a lot of overlap with, with the FBI in these sort of cases, um, and we work really closely. They, they are uh, on our cyber fraud task forces. We're on their uh, cyber task forces, but they tend to prioritize cases that involve either state actors or uh, or terrorism or crimes you know, that against infrastructure and things like that. If it's purely financial in nature, Generally, uh, the, the Secret Service has primary jurisdiction on this, although we work a lot of these things together. But, you know, that's that, that's how these cases, I mean, why these cases are transnational organized crime cases. I mean, they they often have, especially when you get into the more cyber-enabled fraud, the, 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 this fraud we're talking about is a little bit antiquated. Uh, different parts of it are certainly still happening today. But as you get into the cyber-enabled fraud, there's there's almost always an international element to it. And oftentimes the international element involves a government perhaps that may not necessarily be friendly to the United States and is looking for an additional revenue stream, perhaps. That's certainly been the case in uh, in some cases that I can think of for sure. With these, with these syndicates, I think one thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is how big they are. It sounds like they're obviously enlisting the aid of lots of people with, uh, say, waiters at a restaurant, things like that. But in terms of like the core organizing... Um, groups that are behind these is that something like 10 people or a hundred people or a thousand it was just adam and me <laughs> so it's, oh. <laughs> it's you know when you when you talk about these waiters there's some people that are sort of managers and they go out into that community of folks and that's off often uh folks that are you know ethnically or culturally connected um this particular case was in the Asian community, but I've seen it in um, all sorts of different communities that exist in the United States. White, black, brown, I mean, you know, it, it's, it certainly runs the gamut. Um, 
but so it's equal so opportunity. It, it, it absolutely is equal opportunity. And, and these folks are going to, uh, as many sk skimmers, physical, the skimming devices, which are relatively cheap that they have, they're going to list as many waiters as they can. So might be 20, 30, 40 different waiters that have been involved. Um, is this still going really on, know. by the way, Brian? It's skimming cases are going on. I've, I've heard of them less in restaurants like this and more with fake devices, like fake readers uh, at gas stations are big. I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a huge case uh, all over the country with these gas station skimmers where they actually kind of put a, a facade over the front of some of these pumps so that you're not putting it into the stores, you're putting it into, into theirs. And driving by that, Brian, would you be able to spot one yourself having worked on these cases? No, no I mean... We went in and inspected it, and we certainly have. Yeah. Have we? When I came, when I was young in the Secret Service, we all wore every kind of hat uh, that there was. You would do surveillance, you do undercover, or you do, um, you know, interviews. We all kind of did everything. As these crimes become more sophisticated, we definitely um, uh, have our folks more specialized. So we we have we have our folks that go. All of our agents now go through through basic cyber crime training, um, and but we have we have a lot of our folks that now go through like really high speed uh, training in that area, and they could certainly spot these things. But driving by on the street, I, I don't think anybody would would be able to tell. I mean, you'd have to go up and and examine it. And obviously, there's hundreds of thousands of gas stations in the United States. While this scam was primarily in-person and offline, I think that we can say that the same strategies are kind of used today. Phishing, shopping, shopping site hacks, buying and selling user data on the dark web. It's just, scammers just get into your life when you're not paying attention. And in those days, people weren't paying as much attention simply because you didn't have the kind of access then that you do now. Yeah, it was impossible. Now. It was You couldn't. You couldn't. It's not like you could go online and monitor your credit card activity or get transaction alerts. It was kind of like you had to wait till the end of the month or you would find out the really unpleasant way, which is you went to the store, you pull out your credit card, you try to charge something and you were declined because you were over the limit. Well, you know, I actually liken it, guys, to the early Internet, which, you know, you may recall in the late 90s when you were downloading something, it took forever to do. Doop, doop. The dial tone. And when I got that bill for the gold that I didn't buy, that someone bought with my credit card, it came at the end of the month, and it, what it, it, and it was $5,000 more than my credit card usually was. So I had a heart attack. Nowadays, the heart attack comes much faster because we have fast internet and instant, so instant gratification so instant instant st d dying in in your in your shoes because I get a, a text saying, "Did you just buy?" An airplane. <laughs> no, I didn't. But. Well, and this 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 no. is why <laughs> our philosophy back started in the '90s, and yeah. uh, with our, our initial electronic crimes task forces that have now morphed into um, our cyber fraud task forces. And the, the business model is, you know, the Secret Service leads these. They're in, in all major cities. And we have a few international in the United States and a few international ones. But the business model is to bring together all the federal, state, local law enforcement in a particular area, a particular region, and but also to bring in uh, the private sector, mostly financial sector folks, so all the bank investigators. And then we bring in academia because the academia folks 
are going to they're going to see trends. They're going to be following the technology. The bank folks are going to see even before um, all the advances that have been made in the last twenty years. They were still going to see trends, and so you know that's how we found out about that uh, skimming buying counterfeit credit card case. I talked to, that we've been talking about is that the bank saw some patterns, and since they sit in our cyber fraud task forces and we're all there shoulder to shoulder and we're meeting regularly. They let us know, hey, we're seeing some activity here. And the Amex guy might be sitting next to the Citibank guy and um, sitting next to the MasterCard guy. And so we start seeing these trends and then we get we, we can be very uh, strategic and focused in our investigations and look for a way in, which might be an arrest of a skimmer that can provide us some information that can go back to the manager, or it might be one of the shoppers got caught out in, in another state. And... It, he might have got caught two weeks ago, but we can go back and take a look at that evidence. And that that's what we did. It was a number of different police reports you looked at and um, uh, informants that were developed. And we sort of information from the banks and we start to piece it all together and to start identifying the, the people that are running it and then, you know, target them through through different types of investigation. So you did eventually get the funnel down to the the, the prime members yep. of this scam and and how many were there at the end like when you finally got when you finally got to the bottom of it you did crack this case yeah yeah the agents that that work in this case did a great job this case got so big we ended up having three case agents which is unusual for us um we had a squad of 22 agents and there was times when most of us were working in this case um but three of them worked it over several months uh, over a year full-time and we we ended up making uh, 11 arrests, and we ended up going up on a Title III wiretap where we were tapping uh, some of the bad guys' phone calls, and we're able to to kind of figure out the whole conspiracy, and with surveillance and with investigations and with other uh, evidence gathering through the banks, we were able to figure it out. So 11 11 folks were uh, indicted in that case, and, and ended up doing the. Uh, some, some amount of prison time, and uh, we seized a few million dollars. Certainly, a lot less than was probably stolen, but we still seized a few million dollars in uh, in items that were recovered and, and in cash. After you uh, busted this ring, was there any kind of like discernible dent made in that form of crime, or was it just more of a whack a mole scenario? It's I hate to say it, but it's a lot of it was whack a mole until mm-hmm. um, some combination of of, of legislative fixes. And or the you know banks bringing in uh, new security features uh, and new protocols, uh, it's it's more like it, the crime just seemed to sort of float around to different groups. You might see a decrease in a certain population, but someone else is there to um, uh, to, to 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 pick up the slack. It's it's hard with all the banks being disparate, even though we have as many of them investigators as as we can in our task forces it's still hard to have a really crisp, clear macro view of, of, of what's going on. Um, but this scam was, I'm sure there was dozens of scams going on like this at the same time. Um, and, you know, we did, we did and do the best we can to, to strategically take out uh, the, the biggest actors. You know, we're not, the Secret Service generally is not going to get involved in uh, a single case of somebody having their identity stolen or somebody's credit card uh, uh, they're being fraud on somebody's credit card. We're looking for trends and patterns so we can focus on these large groups 
um, which again are, are often, you know, transnational uh, in nature and focus where we're going to get, you know, the biggest amount of, uh, you know, prosecution and seizures and arrests. We, we seize a lot uh, of money that we're, that a lot of that's able to go back to the victims. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and, and sentences. So we really look for the biggest bang for our buck because we're a small agency. Secret service has less than 4,000 agents throughout the whole world. And so we really look to use our cyber fraud task forces as force multipliers, uh, to, to work with, with state and local, uh, and, and city law enforcement and, and our federal partners, um, and the private sector to, be as strategic as possible so we can make the, the the biggest impact in the community to reduce these sort of frauds. A situation like this versus today is this was obviously very labor intense for the criminals. I mean, they, they needed a lot of guys. Whereas today with cyber, you don't need a lot of guys, but and you can cover a lot more ground, which makes cyber even more dangerous. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so before we end, maybe skimmers aren't as common as they were in the 2000s, but what can people look for in order to just better protect their stuff in today's world? Keep their eye on their cards when you can and to regularly check, check their accounts online um, and certainly be, make sure they're signed up for the transaction fraud alerts that, that, that all the banks provide now. But on top of that, just pay attention to what's going on in their accounts. And we all use our cards someplace where afterwards we get that little itch in the back of our neck. We're like, eh, that was a little sketchy. So especially in those occasions to to make a point of going on uh, line and, 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 and checking regularly so you can be right on it. I don't know anybody whose card hasn't been used. Uh, one of their cards hasn't been used for some sort of fraud. So it's all about Stopping when you can, but being able to quickly be aware of it so so that you can shut it down and not get in a place where you're having to fix your whole credit and and uh, you know have to jump through all those hoops and all that pain to so just just to kind of be on it real time as much as possible, I would say. Well, listen, Brian, this has been awesome. We really appreciate you coming, and i I know you're a, a font of stories, so we definitely want to bring you back. Uh, because I have no doubt uh, this is but one of many hair-raising, fundraising stories that you can tell us. So thanks, thanks an awful lot. And we really appreciate you uh, making time to talk with us. Hey, listen, I, I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity and I've enjoyed it. I'd be happy to come back on and, uh, and chat with you guys. I really appreciate what you guys are doing out there in this space to tell these stories, uh, be entertaining, but, but, you know, educate folks about how they can, uh, how they can protect themselves, because that's, that's what it all comes down to. Even with all these great security features and all this information and knowledge that's out there, it, it comes down to paying attention and making a decision to be aware and protect yourself. And it, clearly that's what you guys are all about. So happy to, uh, happy to talk with you. Thanks, man. So as we say, until we skim again. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Knew we had to end on a dad joke. <laughs>
<laughs> I hate when you do that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like it's my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I all right, both of you. I mean, I had transactions, uh, transaction alerts for you know, as my card in this this weird game of of cyber fraud and, and counterfeit credit cards. But there there are other things that you can do to protect yourself. And Adam, I know, I know, we mentioned it in the show, but you're the one who taught me that. Uh, you need to look at your accounts every day. I mean, every do you actually, day. Do you actually do it? Every day. Actually, I get accused by my wife of looking at them every hour. So in other words, like you really will know within minutes or hours that you've been, been uh, hacked. Pretty much. Travis, do you have anything else that people can do? Like, it's scary to think that you could get, I always thought you could see a skimmer but it doesn't sound like you can always. Yeah, they're really low profile, especially the ones that they can put on um, gas pumps and ATMs. They uh, are just tiny. They fit right over the slot. So yeah, you'd have to be looking really hard to uh, spot one. Yeah, but well, one thing for sure, don't use debit cards. Why though? Because with debit cards, it's your money. With yeah. credit cards, it's their money. Oh, but they have protections now or they don't? Not as they, robust? They have protections, but they do reserve the right, a lot of financial institutions, to investigate to make sure that it really was a fraud as opposed to you just had buyer's remorse. So and it's, it's, you have to be careful also because they'll block your account for a certain amount of money until they finish their investigation. Uh, with credit cards, it's a little bit more free-flowing. You report it. They, they freeze it. They do all kinds of different things that is just, I think, more protective of consumers. Yeah. Well, I had um, that, that money that I, I, I had charged to my card for the gold back in the day. That was on my card for two months, as I recall. It was frozen on my card for two months. And by the way, Travis and I want to thank you because that, in part, has helped fund What the Hack with Adam Levin. Oh, I know that's how you got your teeth. If you're not, if you can't, you can't see Adam, but his, all of his teeth are gold. All of them. My grill, my grill. Yeah. Where'd you put your gold, Travis? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, thanks a lot for listening. And by the way, if you want to give us some real gold, like five star gold. Please write a review. And thank you for listening to What the Hack with Adam, Bo, Travis, Brian, and the rest of humanity. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. It's produced by Andrew Stephen, the man with two first names. You can find us online at loudtreemedia.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin. <laughs>